Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's final hearing of the House January 6th Committee, which laid out a devastating case of an attack on the foundation of American democracy by one man determined to hold on to the power of the presidency to apparently shield himself from the law that is finally catching up with him. At every turn, as his desperate strategy to make the big lie come true, Trump was thwarted by the courts and the Constitution, but immediately he escalated with more lies and lawlessness to the point of instigating a coup to stop the transfer of power to the winner of a democratic election. Joining us is Norman Ornstein, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, a contributing editor and columnist for The National Journal, and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He is the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitution System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Tom Mann. Now with an updated version, It's Even Worse Than It Was. He is the co-author of One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate and the not yet deported. And we will discuss his latest article at The Atlantic, How Far Would a Republican Majority Go? Then we'll examine the roles of some of the key players in the insurrection working closely with Trump, who Liz Cheney identified when she said at the end of the hearing that the committee had enough information for criminal referrals, and speak with Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of American politics. A winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism, Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, and The American Prospect as well as on the op-ed pages of the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times. She most recently covered Steve Bannon's contempt of Congress trial for the New Republic, and we will discuss Liz Cheney's resolution to subpoena Trump and whether he would show up to testify. Then finally, with the UN voting overwhelmingly to condemn Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine and the targeting of its civilian population, with only Belarus, Nicaragua, Syria and North Korea coming to Putin's defence, we will look into why Elon Musk, J.D. Vance, Tucker Carlson and Fox News support this murderous dictator. Joining us is Laura Thornton, Director and Senior Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. We will discuss her article at Foreign Policy, Kremlin Talking Points are Back in the U.S. Debate. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, Norman Ornstein, who's a contributing editor for The Atlantic and a contributing editor and columnist for The National Journal and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Tom Mann. Now in an updated version, It's Even Worse Than It Was. And he's the co-author of One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate and the Not Yet Deported. 
and he has an article at The Atlantic, How Far Would a Republican Majority Go? Welcome to Background Briefing, Norman Ornstein. Great to be with you. Thanks for joining us. And the highlight of the long final session of the January 6th committee today ended uh, with Liz Cheney offering a resolution to subpoena Donald J. Trump and saying that there's enough information for criminal referrals. She went on to list those who have taken the Fifth Amendment before this committee, Roger Stone, Mike Flynn, John Eastman, and Clark as well, uh, and said that the DOJ might unearth evidence to uh, further the inquiry. So what specifically is going to happen? I mean, the conventional wisdom is that Trump would not appear because he wouldn't want to be subject to perjury. But do you think he might actually want to appear because he's so adamant in, at these uh, rallies he's having of you know how persecuted he is and may want to use that platform? What do you think? I doubt very much that he will do that. And remember, he had some other bad news yesterday, which is a judge uh, forcing him to appear for a deposition in the defamation trial uh, uh, involving E. Jean Carroll, um, he, which he has resisted strenuously. Trump is uh, smart enough to understand that he could so easily be caught in a perjury trap uh, if he comes and testifies, because everything he's saying at these rallies, and we know from what the committee, the January 6th committee has shown in the past, but even more from what they showed today, is a lie. It's a flat out lie. He has said he wasn't watching television. All of the things that he said are false. And Norm Ornstein, given that Liz Cheney listed those who took the fifth before the committee, is there any possibility that they can... Uh, get more information? I mean, won't these same characters plead the fifth no matter what legal forum they're before? Uh, uh, these characters are going to plead the fifth over and over and over again. And while it is, of course, true that pleading the fifth is not necessarily an admission of guilt, uh, they have guilt written all over them. And we're going to see more evidence. And the committee, I think, has more evidence. And the Justice Department has evidence from texts, from emails, from testimony by others that will implicate them all. I will tell you, Ian, one of the things that I find most frustrating through all of this is that while his law license was suspended, Rudy Giuliani still has a license to practice law in different jurisdictions. All of these other lawyers, uh, John Eastman included, have not been disbarred. Their behavior as lawyers is utterly unethical, and they should be disbarred. And that's a failure of bar associations. What's also clear is that we're going to see multiple criminal referrals out of this, as the uh, chairman, uh, Benny Thompson, and Liz Cheney uh, suggested. Now, the Justice Department doesn't need a criminal referral from a congressional committee to act. And a referral from a congressional committee doesn't force them to act. But it is a powerful prod to do so. And remember, we've already had a week in which we got more just damning evidence about obstruction of justice and illegal possession of documents from Mar at Mar-a-Lago from a staffer uh, with uh, the president 
who said that when the subpoena came to make sure that all of these classified documents and other uh, documents that belong to the public were kept in a, pos- in a place where they could be retrieved and were sent back, that Trump directly himself ordered that the boxes be taken to the residents at Mar-a-Lago. That is as uh, damning a piece of evidence as you could have. He will be indicted almost certainly for charges involving uh, the classified documents and the other documents and materials that he has. This is a different issue, January 6th. What the committee showed today, building on what it had shown before this, is how directly involved Trump was in instigating the violence in hoping that the violence would move to a different level where he could invoke the Insurrection Act, that he is uh, guilty and needs to be indicted. And if he is not indicted, then the precedent is an absolutely horrific one. We also learned today about uh, insidious behavior inside our law enforcement agencies, including the Secret Service, that as uh, the great reporter John Harwood put it in a tweet, Uh, Was this a lapse in intelligence or was it a direct uh, and willful uh, move to ignore the intelligence? We knew that violence was coming. We knew that there were people who were heavily armed and there were actions taken and actions deliberately not taken to protect the Capitol from this violence. We have not seen anything like this since the Civil War era in terms of the direct threat to the Republic. And I think we have more to come, including a committee that may lose its uh, ability to do anything, certainly will after January 3rd, uh, although it could be extended if Democrats miraculously hold the House. But they've got a lot more work that they're going to be doing before then, and we will get more evidence, an interim report or more than one most likely, and certainly a very damning final report. Uh, And it's got to make a difference. Well, it's clearly what we learned today from the testimony provided by Adam Schiff of uh, the evidence that they've gathered from the Secret Service. However, Tony Onato and the head of the Secret Service, who basically (laughs) got the job because Tony Onato recommended him, frankly, I don't understand why Onato is not in the crosshairs. I mean, is there any way? Isn't he the guy, or at least it seems that he's the guy, that had all of these text messages destroyed? It's that plus lying about um, the altercation uh, at Jan- on January 6th where Trump tried to grab the uh, steering wheel. And just as outrageous is that Tony Ornato has continued to be employed in a critical place I- at the Secret Service. The Secret Service needs a thorough reform and cleansing. And some of the people who've been involved in this, and remember, They've destroyed their text messages, and they cannot be retrieved, and that was clearly done deliberately. They knew that they already were supposed to turn them over to the committee, and uh, they destroyed them. There's obstruction of justice that went on at the Secret Service, and I hope among the criminal referrals that we see from the committee are that these terrible people uh, are held accountable. And what about criminal referrals for Meadows and particularly Jason Miller, where it's made clear today in today's hearing 
that Miller was aware of the violence, both on Parler and on this other site, the Donald.win, uh, where he, uh, and he posted, of course, uh, that, quote, I got the base fired up. Well, he got the base fired up, but look what they did. Uh, and not just Jason Miller. One of the great villains in all of this is Mark Meadows. Because he was in contact not just with Jason Miller, but with all these others. He knew exactly what was going on. He's the guy who uh, made sure that Trump was able to walk off with all of these secret documents. He's the guy who did nothing to restrain Trump in inciting the violence on January 6th and then acted to uh, try and keep Trump out of uh, the uh, uh, fire in the aftermath of that. Um, Mark Meadows needs to be indicted as well. And Norm Ornstein, today you got the whole sort of uh, step-by-step history of what happened leading up to January the 6th, but well before with people like Brad Parcells in July, knowing that Trump would uh, declare victory no matter how the American people voted, and, and the tape of Bannon pretty much saying the same thing. What's extraordinary about it is that Trump had a strategy from day one, or before, <laughs> way, way before day one, which I just p- pointed out, and that every time he got shot down by the courts or, you know, as he tried these outrageous moves, he had the next move planned and the next move planned. And, of course, the final one being on the most vulnerable day of all in terms of the shakiness of the Electoral Reform, uh, Electoral Count Act, uh, which at the very beginning, I think it was Liz Cheney, said we need to reform it. Um, yes. So that's what I find extraordinary about it is it is that how feral as a kind of criminal Trump is and he just has he's always got another step and the ultimate step of course was sicking the mob onto the Capitol to stop the count I don't know what the next step after that would have been but there's enough rumors and enough evidence uh, that suggests that some of these uh, militias like the Proud Boys had stacks of ammunition and guns and the plan may well have been to to physically hold the Capitol with uh, weapons. This is all obviously speculation. I would suggest that there were a couple of outcomes that Trump was looking for, three outcomes and two related. The first was to intimidate Mike Pence into asserting authority that he did not have and declaring Trump the victor, which at minimum would have resulted in chaos in the Capitol, challenges in the courts, And what Trump wanted to do was to have all of this delayed until after January 20th, when uh, or uh, uh, basically we would have no victor in the White House and the House would choose the president voting by state. And there were a majority of states controlled by Republicans, so they would pick him. Now, he hoped to do that in a second way if that didn't work with Pence which is why he was eager to come to the Capitol himself, which is that with all of these members uh, crouched down in the chamber, fearful for their lives, he would march in with his armed goons and basically intimidate them into either picking him or delaying. And the third thing is the most uh, devastating, which is 
directly inciting violence to get Mike Pence hanged and key members of Congress uh, killed, and then invoking the Insurrection Act um, and declaring martial law. And keep in mind that there was planning on this front by making sure that the top officials in the Defense Department, the acting secretary, his lackey, Cash Patel, and others, would not only refuse uh, to uh, call out the D.C. National Guard to keep the Capitol from being breached, but were prepared to order the military to mobilize when he declared the Insurrection Act. Uh, it's hard to imagine the depths of evil uh, uh, that were contemplated here in a move to keep him in power. Now, we don't have direct evidence of that. We have a lot of indirect evidence that would suggest it. Um, and that's where we have been, and that's where we are. Now, I don't think, you know, Trump has spent decades avoiding being brought uh, to justice. He's done it through bankruptcies. He's done it through uh, payoffs. Uh, he's done it through having his lawyers delay and obstruct until finally things just went away. Um, and now it's circling around him, and I don't think he can escape on many, many fronts. Um, we're going to see very likely uh, the Trump organization dissolved in the state of New York. He may end up uh, bankrupt from that. Uh, one hopes, even though Trump's lackey is still the commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, Charles Reddick, who has business dealings with him, who made sure that Trump's tax returns were not released, even though they were uh, directly, uh, legitimately supposed to be given to uh, the Ways and Means Committee in the House, that the IRS will step in and hold him accountable for his tax cheating in the past. We know that it's almost certain that he's going to be indicted over the Mar-a-Lago document scandal. And now what the January 6th committee has shown is that it is compelling that he be indicted uh, for inciting violent insurrection. Um, justice is going to come in one way or another to Donald Trump, and he will not go quietly or easily. And we all better brace for the fact that it's going to cause some serious issues in the country as a whole. But it's got to happen. Well, Norman Ornstein, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Sure. Absolutely, Ian. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Norman Ornstein, who's a contributing editor for The Atlantic, a contributing editor and columnist for The National Journal, and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Thomas Mann, now in an updated version, It's Even Worse Than It Was. And he's the co-author of One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. And his latest article at The Atlantic is, How Far Would a Republican Majority Go? We're going to take a brief station break and back examining some of the key players in the insurrection working closely with Trump, who Liz Cheney identified when she said at the end of today's hearing that the committee has enough information for criminal referrals.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Adele Stan, who's an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics, a winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism. She most recently covered Steve Bannon's contempt of Congress trial for the New Republic, and you can find her on Twitter at Addie Stan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adele Stan. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the hearings uh, were today, the final hearings of the January 6th committee, the climax of which was uh, issuing a subpoena to Donald Trump to appear along with documents issued by Liz Cheney. They took a vote. They unanimously did a roll call. They unanimously voted on the resolution. So what was your takeaway from today's hearing? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, they really are trying to roll out the whole story inside of a couple of hours, right? And it's a story that was, you know, depending on from which point you measure it, either months or years in the making in terms of the plot to to not concede the election uh, and to hold on to power. So what I'm thinking with that last subpoena move that they're making to, you know, to call up the former president to appear before Congress is like, I'm going to really look forward to covering Donald Trump's contempt of Congress <laughs> trial because I don't see him doing that at all. You don't, um, and you I don't think, think he, being a, such a publicity hound and a narcissist and driven by all of this bitterness that he harbors and all of him feeling so beleaguered that he might want to take the advantage of appearing on camera and giving his side of the story? Well, I think he'll do that on his own terms or at least try to, Ian, and not in a a setting that is, you know, controlled by the committee. So under oath. (laughs) And under oath, indeed, under oath. That's the key thing, isn't it? I mean... Well, it is. Um, and, you know, g- giving the committee a whole lot of pictures of him taking the fifth is not going to play well for him. But for fundraising purposes, you know, being charged with contempt of Congress could actually, you know, uh, he could, might be able to make something out of that because that's worthy of a lot of airtime. Um, so I honestly don't know how that part of it all pans out, but it does seem to me that the committee is unanimously making a point that, you know, that, that, that there's somebody who is ultimately responsible for what happened on that day, and that person is Donald J. Trump. Well, that, I guess, was really the whole point of the exercise today, that this is all the result of one man, and they went way back in time to show how he had essentially had a strategy, and every time whatever efforts he made in his long strategy failed, he he immediately went to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage and the next stage, and the final stage being January the 6th. That at least seemed incredibly clear to me, and in terms of the work that you've been doing investigating both Stephen Bannon and Roger Stone, Adele Stan, they knew way early, right, that Trump was well, not going to concede and that he, no matter what the election results were, this was going to happen exactly as it happened. Absolutely. I mean, that's what, you know, we saw the um, the footage of, of Bannon talking to some uh, friendly uh, folks who are 
said to be associates of him who are from China saying as much, right, that, you know, whether he wins or whether he he, he doesn't, he's going to say that he wins. And, and Bannon had said something similar to that on his own podcast, um, uh, I believe, on Election Day. Um, so, you know, it's not a secret. What I thought was really interesting was uh, early in the hearing, um, a memo from Tom Fitton, who is the head of a right-wing outfit called Judicial Watch, uh, was featured, uh, which basically laid out this whole, you know, deny that you lost strategy. But Fitton, as soon as Trump was elected in 2016, was putting out the message that millions of Americans or millions of people had voted fraudulently, and that's why Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. So, you know, this is a this is a narrative that has been, you know, long in the in the hewing and honing. Well, I get a daily uh, dose of lunacy from Tom Fenton and Judicial Watch because <laughs> so, I'm on all of those uh, right-wing sites just yeah, to, to figure out what the right. hell they're thinking, or thinking might be too generous a description. But in terms of the last little bit of the hearing with Liz Cheney offering up the resolution to subpoena Donald J. Trump, she said that there's enough information for criminal referrals and then she went on to list those who took the fifth, including right. Stone. And, of course, we know that uh, that Bannon has already been tried and uh, is about to be convicted. Right. And along with Flynn and Eastman and Clark. So right. what's your sense there of what the next move in terms of turning the screws? Because, remember, you know, Roger Stone, of course, was a protege of the sort of <laughs> the Prince of Darkness who was... Uh, Trump's lawyer, Roy Cohn, right. and he Roy handed Cohn. off the Trump right. account. Apparently, Trump treated him rather poorly, but he handed off the uh-huh. Trump account to uh, right. Roger Stone. So not only does he have that sort of background from that mentor, he's also been with Trump an awful long time. Right. And he's also suffered some of those kinds of blows himself from Trump as well, right? I mean, he was a uh, pushed off um, the Trump campaign in a former role, and then Bannon was was uh, brought on. And although those two have been known to work in, in, in alliance, uh, they, there's a fierce rivalry there. So, you know, it, it's, it's quite, it's quite, it's, it's, it's an amazing saga on all fronts, not least of which is, you know, the future of democracy. And who knows what, what, you know, pursuing what what kind of uh, uh, incidents or or emotions will be stirred by um, the pursuit of justice in these matters. Uh, so I think you know we still have a rough road ahead, even if justice prevails. Um, but uh, I surely hope that justice does prevail because it was just an astonishing litany. Um, of uh, of implication against Trump. And I'll tell you, the Secret Service didn't come off looking all that great. Well, also, by extension, uh, neither does the FBI, because it's clearly right, a indeed. massive intelligence failure, is it not? A failure, at least. Um, if not, um, I mean, I just saw a, a, a letter from um, Christopher Ray, I believe, uh, that was tweeted out by... Um, uh, NBC reporters that, you know, it's, it's an archival piece 
um, saying that there was sympathy for some of the the protesters within the FBI. So, I mean, this gets to the problem we have within um, multiple law enforcement, national security, and military operations, right, where we don't really have a unified um, – there are, have been, um, you know, there have been fissures in these institutions for a while now um, that are ideologically driven. Well, that's the frightening part of these calls for civil war from the right-wing militias and the far-right fringe, which has now essentially become, in many ways, the mainstream of the Republican Party. Right, uh, right. They're talking about civil war all the time, and if there is to be a civil war, uh, I mean, just recently, Marjorie Taylor Greene said that the Democrats are out killing Republicans. Um, I, I know, right? Have you heard of any of <laughs> that? But... That that still resonates and echoes through the that sort of echo chamber that they have, and if you did get to a situation where you needed law enforcement or the national guard to keep the peace, then you have to worry about within those ranks how many of them are MAGA people, you know. Absolutely, I mean, you know, one of uh, Mike Flynn's brothers was, uh, you know, active duty, uh, one of the top guys in the, I believe, in the Pentagon. You know, on January 6th, I, 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 you know, I'm not saying guilt by association, but I'm like, what did he know? You know, <laughs> you know? I mean, right. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a lot. I mean, if you pick up the sheet over that's over Oath Keepers right now, that's just the tip of an iceberg of political, of right wing political leanings among law enforcement or former law enforcement people. Uh, it's not to say they all are. They certainly are not. But there's a sizable number who lean that way, and we don't really have a way to quantify it. Right, but that problem of how much the law enforcement, you know, we know in, in terms of at the local police level and sheriff level, uh, right. there's a lot of sympathy for Trump. But then if it goes all the way up through the ranks of the military, then it's really scary. But also, in parallel to that, you have the same phenomenon, in a sense, with the law. If you have a jury trying Trump or any of his associates, it's going to be mm -hmm. hard to have a jury that doesn't have a Trumpster on it or a MAGA person. Oh, absolutely. And all you need to do is to introduce, um, you know, reasonable doubt. If it's, you know, contempt of Congress, for instance, if, it's, if you're not going criminal, like contempt of Congress, you can't, if you have a you know, reasonable doubt, you can't convict. So, and that only takes one member of a jury. So you're absolutely right. Um, it's very hard to see how this all ultimately resolves itself. It'd be interesting to see what Merrick Garland, you know, does or doesn't do um, with uh, what the January 6th committee has recommended. And I thought it was interesting that the prospect of criminal referrals was raised because a lot of folks on the committee, you couldn't get a clear read. Um, some people were apparently uh, from, according to reporting, not everybody on the committee was behind the notion of making a criminal referral. Um, but it seems like there's criminal referrals in the offing. Well, Liz Cheney at the end there said there's enough information for criminal referrals. Right. Uh, right and she right. also said that the DOJ might unearth evidence mm -hmm. to support these criminal referrals. 
But my understanding, Adele Stan, is that that in spite of what we heard today, which made such a clear case that this is this all happened because of this one man. He orchestrated the whole thing, and he had a plan. Then he had a backup plan, and every time he failed, uh, you know, in the courts, and he particularly apparently had a meltdown uh, on December the 11th when the Supreme Court turned down his entreaties to them. That what really worries him now, in spite of everything that the January 6th committee has presented to us, and along with the possibility of a subpoena, he's really apparently completely freaked out now by the investigation into his misuse of, uh, or actually theft of government property, what it comes down right. to, in terms right. of these classified documents. This has apparently really got him on the run and quite nervous. He, you can even see it on his face at these rallies. Mm-hmm. His, you know, the normal kind of orange, deranged person is particularly right. tortured in his ramblings. Right, you don't feel you don't feel the the happy warrior aspect of his um, of his uh, character. <laughs> right. More recently, yeah, indeed, I think he is, and and I think he's probably pretty nervous about what's going on regarding his businesses in New York State as well. So, I mean, he could wind up pretty broke. You know, he could wind up pretty broke and and under federal indictment. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. And what is the Republican Party going to do with him as a nominee? I mean, it seems that they've laid down and accepted this as the probability at this point. I don't think anybody in the GOP has got the gumption to try to stop him other than anybody who might compete against him in a primary, DeSantis or somebody. But I don't see the party looking to get in the way of the Trump train. So Letitia James is now trying to sort of stop Trump from hiding assets? I mean, is she playing catch-up or is she being proactive? I think that she's being pretty proactive because, I mean, she has managed to, Letitia James is the uh, Attorney General of New York State, and and she has managed to keep her investigation, which we have to say is not a criminal investigation, right? It's a criminal investigation would would go to... uh, a different entity, but it is a fraud investigation, a civil investigation that can still wind up costing, you know, the Trump organization lots and lots of money and the ability to to operate its business in New York State and, and all kinds of other things. So I think she's been pretty, pretty proactive. It's just a very different sort of investigation that is all about financial statements and what Trump represented to banks, you know, as to how much money he actually had or how much a building was actually worth that he was using as collateral or whatever. So it's so so it, there's a lot going on. There, there's a lot going on in Trump world. And he's not getting any younger. So, you know, I believe he's, what, 75, 76 right now. It's very, it's, it's very hard to predict what kind of future Donald Trump is going to have, but he seems hell-bent on running for president again. Well, that's his get-out-of-jail right. free, free card. So that's probably why he's fighting so hard and why <laughs> what was outlined today in this long hearing, piece by piece, the entire history of, of each move that he made. It's all about right. desperately trying to cling to the office of the presidency, which is... Um, I think a lot to do with uh, 
providing it with immunity. I, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So just in the last couple of minutes, Adele, Stan, given how polarized we are, what kind of chance of this moving the needle? I mean, the, Benny Thompson in the opening, the chair tried to make the case that the average American should look at this and not see this as a partisan inquiry, but this is a search for the truth. And just you sort of almost beg people to, to watch and take it seriously. I'm almost certain it wasn't played on Fox. <laughs> so what are the chances of it moving the needle in the peeling off some people from Trump world? Well, I don't know that it necessarily peels off people who are, you know, part of Trump world, but it might peel off independents, people who claim themselves to be independent, who generally tend to lean Republican uh, if they self-identify as independents. But it might get some of those folks, people who are regarded as swing voters. Um, uh, it's the kind of narrative that if somebody is not caught in the unreality, you know, verse of, uh, of Trump world, um, to this is the kind of thing to women does does not appeal to women at all. And and then today, of course, there was some lionizing video of Nancy Pelosi that was candid video, just cool as a cucumber, trying to manage, you know, how to respond to that insurrection while it was happening. Uh, that was pretty uh, amazing. But you know, I think I think that. Um, it, it's, you know, the, 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 the outcome is always somewhere in the mushy middle uh, in democratic elections, because, especially as we've become more polarized. And the middle may be shrinking, but the middle still can hold really, really great power if indeed those folks who are not normally politically super engaged turn out to vote. And that's going to be the great mystery, because right now in these midterms, the pollsters don't know what the electorate looks like, and they, they are finally at the point in losing so many times in their predictions that they're beginning to admit that. Um, I could have told you that in 2015, looking at the Trump base, you know. So, time will tell. Well, Adele Stan, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure to be with you, Ian. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks, Adele. And again, I've been speaking with Adele Stan, who's an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics, a winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism. She's most recently covered Stephen Bannon's contempt of Congress trial for the New Republic, and you will find her on Twitter at Addie Stan. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into why, after the UN voted overwhelmingly to condemn Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine, Elon Musk, J.D. Vance, Tucker Carlson and Fox News support this murderous dictator. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Laura Thornton, Director and Senior Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund, 
Previously, she was Director of Global Programs at International IDEA, where she managed multiple teams across Europe focused on constitutional building, parliamentary process, elections, gender and inclusion, political parties and democracy assessment and analysis. And she has an article at Foreign Policy, Kremlin Talking Points Are Back in the U.S. Debate. Welcome to Background Briefing, Laura Thornton. It's lovely to be back. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Laura. And you would think that nobody much would be supporting Putin at this moment, particularly after he's been raining missiles down on Ukrainian civilians and infrastructure, blowing up children's playgrounds and kindergartens, pedestrian bridges, etc. And in fact, it's reflected in a, in a UN General Assembly vote where I think it was 143, 144 countries voted to condemn him and a number abstained and the only ones that supported him were North Korea, Nicaragua, Syria and Belarus. So why is it then that he has any support in this country, let alone vocal support from Fox News and their number one host and of all people, uh, Elon Musk? It is very perplexing to me. Um, it's it's astonishing, particularly, like you said, as we have even more information about the grotesque uh, atrocities uh, that he's committed, the mass graves uh, that we all see on our TV screens, that anyone would be moving more in the direction of a pro-Putin agenda. But here we are. Uh, I think some uh, of the alarmingly candidates for office in the United States and existing Congress people, some are motivated by a financial argument, the America first protectionism argument. So that is more sort of clear in the sense that it's like, why are we spending all this money overseas? It should be kept in the United States, et cetera. Um, that's one argument. But the other one that which I also disagree with, by the way, but the other one, which is more egregious, is actual verbatim talking points, including Ukrainians are Nazis, uh, that, that Putin is the victim, that Ukraine started the war, and even unbelievably that the United States blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. <laughs> so it's, so you have to start to wonder what's going on if there isn't, um, you know, I'm even starting to wonder who's on the payroll of the Kremlin because I cannot see any reason for for this sort of uh, fulsome defense of Putin right now. So is there, I mean, you're involved in documenting the, the support for Putin within, within the Republican ranks, mostly of those running, of course, within the ranks of the Republicans running, there are 299 Republican ca candidates for these midterm elections that are election deniers. Perhaps. So you've got, the, <laughs> that's bad enough, but within those ranks, you've also got Russian apologists, I guess. And tell us about the Midterm Monitor. This is a joint social media tracking project of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, the German Marshall Fund, and the Brennan Center for Justice. Yeah, so this is a extremely interesting tool where we are basically um, capturing the accounts of all candidates for uh, for Congress, for uh, key state offices like governor, secretary of state. We are also tracking major media sources, uh, social media sites, and other influencers and journalists. 
as well as our normal um, foreign state actor accounts, which we've tracked for years through our Hamilton dashboard. So it really allows us an insight into, you know, what are, what's the information ecosystem around our elections, um, but also we can see where there's overlap between uh, foreign malign actors and our domestic actors and where, for example, information is being laundered. Um, and unfortunately, we, you know, it's not being talked about quite enough, in my view, about the foreign threat in these elections, but it's, it's very real. I mean, it might not be 2016 levels, but Russia is very delighted in participating in our um, agony over election integrity. Uh, so fueling the flames that we've created ourselves, they don't even need to create new content. Um, they just go out with big lie narratives, sowing distrust in the election process, whether it's mail-in balloting or drop boxes, uh, you know, just fueling that already uh, high level of distrust that exists among a portion of population here. So they've been very involved in that. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right. We're seeing election denialism really top the charts on social media ahead of this election in two ways. I mean, people promoting the big lie, but also there's a lot of accounts countering it. So you see the debate very much around that issue. Uh, and that's one of the top sort of issues that we're seeing in these accounts ahead of the elections. The monitor can be used also to track any issue you want. So you could put in, you know, um, in, uh, taxes and you would see what all the candidates and other influencers are saying about that issue. Um, but we've been really looking at election integrity specifically because that's a big concern of ours. Well, it's a concern of mine too, Laura, and, and I see the writing on the wall. The Republicans have made it clear they are modeling the electoral autocracy strategy of their hero, Hungary's Viktor Orban, as they mm -hmm. busily take over the electoral machinery of the country at the state and local level. So unless the Democrats come out in unprecedented numbers on or before November the 8th to vote against these election deniers, and there are 299 of them running, by the way, the Republicans will capture the Congress and lay the path for Trump's comeback in 2024. So in yeah. effect, if, if you don't vote to stop them before your vote becomes meaningless, in a little over three weeks, you'll be watching the beginning of the end of American democracy. That's right. I mean, and that's why these, these state offices that maybe the Democratic Party hasn't paid enough attention to, I would argue, um, are key. Uh, you know, we think, oh, Secretary of State, what's that? I don't care. No, we should care because it, it, like you said, it will determine um, our, our next presidential election, for example. And Viktor Orban learned from the best. I mean, we're, the gerrymandering he has adopted, he learned from us. So, you know, it, I, li I like that this undemocratic learning is going back and forth. Um, he he's talked very openly about how he's modeling some of his changes off of the minoritarianism that the United States has. Uh, so we do need to be very mindful. It's not only that you have election deniers be appointed to important positions where there could be threats, for example, to the slate of electors. You also have legislation taking place, as you know, in these states that are uh, not only limiting voting, but also changing the role of poll workers and importantly, changing the role of election observers. And this is an area that I've I have a lot of experience in because I've been observing elections overseas for decades. And the kind of legislation that's being put into place is in complete violation of all global international standards 
on best practice for election observation, empowering observers to, to interfere in the election process. And this is so dangerous, particularly in a country that is, you know, awash with ammunition and guns. And then you have hyped up poll watchers, quote, quote, going into the station and doing things like verifying voter ID. I mean, this is un, this is just a, a, a recipe for catastrophe uh, and potential violence. So yeah, we these elections, we need to vote like our democracy depends on it because in many ways it really does. So Laura Thornton, in your work with the Midterm Monitor, this joint social media tracking project of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, the German Marshall Fund and the Brennan Center of Justice, have you figured out, though, what kind of ideological underpinning is going on here? I, I don't know what Tucker Carlson's ideology is, and certainly Rupert Murdoch. I mean, a friend of mine used to work for him at a very high level, and he told me that he spoke with Murdoch after he had visited with Putin many well, number of years ago, probably about 10 years ago. And he, he asked uh, Murdoch, what do you think of Putin? And Murdoch said, Putin's a bloody gangster. <laughs> so, so, so that's what Murdoch's opinion is, but yet Fox News is making apologies for him and, and allowing their most popular uh, talking head to essentially parrot Kremlin talking points. J.D. Wow. Vance is on the stump. He's a protege of, of Peter Thiel, uh, who's a very close friend of Elon Musk's. I think, you know, people describe them as libertarians, where they basically want to destroy government and just have the world run by billionaires. I'm, I'm not sure that, is that a possibility that they see Putin as a kind of model where you have a meaningless democracy and a country run by oligarchs? What is the appeal of Putin to people like uh, Musk and Peter Thiel and J.D. Vance? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I mean, I don't have one answer to that. I mean, I think on the right for some time, we've seen sort of a fetish, a Putin fetish, and, and not just Putin, but autocrats. So, you know, there the far right sees these strong men as desirable, particularly uh, we see a lot, for example, in unfortunately, the evangelical community where they, they applaud these strong men's positions on issues of gender and LGBTQ rights and sort of the conservative bullying of leaders like Putin. Uh, so there is that, that sort of, you know, an admiration for such strong men. I think that's part of it. I think why Fox doesn't remove Tucker Carlson is, you know, probably financial. The same reason in a way uh, that Republican leadership isn't calling out these egregious statements uh, that are made by uh, Trump or his followers because, you know, power, they want to hold on. So in a way, leaders are victims of, of the masses in some sense. Uh, as for the Elon Musk question, I don't know. I mean, part of it, I think it's where, you know, extremely rich people feel like they can also be excellent at everything and just want to, you know, solve all the world's problems and step in and negotiate, you know, peace or, or whatever, uh, because they think that because they're good at one thing, therefore they must be good at everything. 
um, and just want to be part of that dialogue. Or it could be more sinister, as you as you intimated, that that there's something about the power of wealth and oligarchs in these countries that Elon Musk would desire for himself. You know, I mean, Trump said it too. I think at one point, I I think it was in Maggie Haberman's book where he said, you know, there are lots of rich people, but no one knows who they are. It's not enough just to be rich. You want to be powerful and influential. Uh, so maybe that oligarch model um, that Putin relies on is something that is attractive to someone like Elon Musk. I mean, there's there been investigations into Trump's ties to uh, Putin, uh, yeah. which he has fought against zealously. And it's worth noting that the entire institutional understanding of Russian organized crime and Trump's ties to Putin all of those people have been purged from the FBI. That was the first thing that Trump did. So that's a story. And Mueller, of course, dropped the ball on that. And there's some reporting that suggests that the reason why Trump held onto a lot of these documents was he was mm. trying to find something to def defend himself against yeah. accusations that he is owned by uh, Putin. As the former head of American intelligence, General Clapper, said, Putin is Trump's case officer. So mm -hmm. that's always been there in the yeah. background. Um, so you know, if you if if your president is a traitor, then <laughs> this this right. is trickle down treason, right? <laughs> trickle down treason. I like that. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that there's you know that was also allegedly one of the reasons Trump is so reluctant to reveal his taxes is not just because he's not as rich as he claims. Uh, but also because of the, you know, the deals that he's made in 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 Russia over the years. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's it's very plausible that he keeps trying to uh, cover that up. I think it's also notable that in these um, the tweets and and social media posts that we've been tracking through the monitor, a lot of them also talk about linking um, the war in Ukraine to the so-called Russian hoax. So they definitely see that as connected. So, I, I mean, it's it's an absurd argument, so I can't even make it because it's like the war in Ukraine is somehow part of an elaborate scheme by Democrats as part of the whole Russian hoax. So it's, in other words, you know, criticizing Russia means, uh-oh, you know, therefore we're also talking about the first impeachment and, it, you know, it, so it gets wrapped up in that whole conversation. So Russia's gotta be good. Because if they're not, then how do we justify these this other thing? And so I just thought it was interesting that several candidates were calling it the Russian hoax. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, 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 just in the last couple of minutes, so uh, Laura, I wanted to to get your opinion on what's going to happen if the Republicans take the House in November, as many predict. They will clearly have endless hearings into Hunter Biden. They'll yeah. also apparently impeach. Biden and they'll tr and Gar just, Garland probably and Garland, but their tactic and strategy will be to drive down Biden's favorability ahead of the 2024 elections by just throwing all kinds of ludicrous stuff at the wall and see what sticks. That's all they've got because they, they're evidence free, just like Trump is. So, given the the portent of this maybe being the last Democratic election, if these election deniers take over the machinery of American elections, could you also assume that in the mix uh, for a, a house control by republicans will be a change in support for ukraine because they're blindly against 
Biden, just as Trump was blindly against anything Obama did and undid everything mm-hmm. they did. So will they reflexively just uh, pull the funding for Ukraine? Well, gosh, I hope not. I mean, I I, I do worry that the change, well, I worry about the changing house composition for the reasons you stated. I think it will just be, you know, a cesspool of impeachment hearings and, and noise making. Um, but I also do worry that if enough of these anti-Ukraine uh, folks are elected, there could be, yes, pushback against aid. Uh, and particularly as we head into sort of the new Marshall Plan for Ukraine, it's, it's going to be costly. Um, and I can see some pushback there. I think a lot will depend on the Senate. Uh, so uh, for now, that most of the Republicans in the Senate are very supportive and have backed the Biden administration around the war. So I just hope that continues and that the sort of the, 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 the rowdy House members don't influence the Republican senator, Senate too much. However, it doesn't make me happy that people that we we have sort of tossed aside as fringe, like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, she's fringe. Well, they're going to have leadership positions. I mean, McCarthy's already intimated that, you know, she's going to maybe be a committee chair. So you can only imagine what would what would happen in those circumstances, say she was, you know, put on the, can you imagine the Foreign Affairs Committee? Um, so, yeah, I mean, you could see at a minimum, things slowing down with regard to aid and support for Ukraine. At worst, you know, a full obstruction of our ability to, to support the country, but also the signal that we're sending to our allies who are petrified. And every time I'm in Europe, and I'm sure you can relate to this, I am asked to talk about this at length because they're very skittish about the United States and our constantly shifting foreign policy focus. And if we start going America first again, it's it's going to really unravel an alliance that, that we're bolstering at this point because we have European allies that are, have their own far-right constituencies that are pushing back. So it would not be a, a good combination at all. Well, Laura Thornton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Laura Thornton, who's Director and Senior Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Previously, she was Director of Global Programs at International IDEA, where she managed multiple teams across Europe focused on constitution building, parliamentary process elections, gender and inclusion, political parties and democracy assessment and analysis. And she has an article on foreign policy. Kremlin talking points are back in the U.S. debate. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. 
and I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice saying something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land One more light goes out